Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. Start with a random article, explore it, then see, follow the links and see where it takes us. Uh, this is our first episode back from the big 100. That was a trip, wasn't it? It was. What a, what a clip show. <laughs> Hopefully we can start out strong with our second batch, our, yeah. our, another, our next hundo. Because we ended very strong, mm-hmm. so... I, don't know. Gonna I feel like hard. we set the bar pretty high at the yeah, end of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we but may we may end up going back to the same old old drudgery. Except, <laughs> I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll see. I have I have something up my sleeve. I don't know about you. All right. But All I got right. some I got some good uh, stuff to even. I, I have a feeling it might be a, a one done hmm. episode. So we'll see. Huh. Maybe two and done technically. But. All right. All right. Well, what is your article? I have the 105th Infantry Regiment of the United States. Now, before you, you know, soil yourselves with excitement, allow me to explain why I was really uh, 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 sold on this article from the beginning. There is a link in the first paragraph to the largest Japanese bonsai charge. Oh. Of World War Two. Interesting. So we could go into some really, like, weird war <laughs> tactics if we wanted to from the onset. Hmm. Um, now, the interesting thing about the 105th Infantry Regiment, though, is that it is based out of the uh, New York Army National Guard, uh, but it still saw uh, combat in both the American Civil War as well as both of the World Wars. Uh, and it is highly decorated for the Battle of Saipan, where it incurred said aforementioned large Japanese bonsai charge, hmm. um, and still managed to uh, not have the war effort collapse. Their coat of arms is, I suppose, probably just what happens when you have to live in a world where there is a coat of arms for too many things. Uh, it is a boat, a sailboat. With the flags of, I think, England, maybe Ireland, and maybe Denmark, and maybe Jethro Tull, um, <laughs> floating atop a sea in which a sword, a another sword, and what is, I think, maybe a cactus, and then above, the both of those things are situated directly above an apple with the number two in it. Hmm. Which is curious because this is the 105th regiment <laughs> and none of those things seem to have anything <laughs> to do with the the name of... Maybe it's like one of those quilts where everybody kind of adds something that's meaningful to them. Yeah. So they and all kind of was... got together like, I like apples. I like the number two. I like this. <laughs> like, like, yeah. I, I don't see anything in here about how the coat of arms came to be, but of everything in this article... Uh, I think that would be the most interesting portion <laughs> because everything else is literally just their, uh, you know, their deployed uh, uh, situations and their, you know, their antics. And by antics, I mean, you know, participation in battles. But uh, <laughs> same thing. Um, still, uh, it gives us other really good links. There's a really uh, substantial amount of information in this article. Uh, and a lot of links to boot, but of course, as is the case with most articles like this, they do almost indefinitely set us down a military path mm. from the onset. So, in the interest of not having to wax the historical <laughs> in probably the most depraved and driest sense, um, I'm gonna go ahead and yield to you. Maybe we have maybe we have something <laughs> that's like interesting, but not quite as. Uh, not quite as uh, war geared. I don't want to be some sort of war hawk <laughs> over here. I don't necessarily want to do a war. War is well, like, like seriously, like 
The History Channel is like airing a fictional show about Vikings now for a reason. Because Hitler gets old, man. <laughs> Hitler gets old. Well, I have Camp Curtin, which was a military training camp in Harrisburg, Harrisburg Pennsylvania That's during the, the American Civil War. Yeah, I know. I was uh, when I was uh, training for my job. There was actually... Uh, um, I actually went to training and walked by Camp Curtin Elementary School and was like, what's Camp Curtin? So I was on this article oh. of my own volition not too <laughs> long ago, completely unrelated to huh. hitting the random button right now. That's really cool. But um, um, so much for avoiding the military. Thing, yeah. huh? <laughs> There's no way of getting out of the military. Okay. But we can go to different eras of time. And, well, what, and what's what's up with Camp Curtin? What, the, is it a little less well, involved in the direct, you know, warfare type things or... Um, well, okay, when news of bombardment of some sequent surrender of Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina, reached uh, Washington, D.C. on April 14th, 1861, President Abraham Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers to join the army to quell the rebellion of the southern states. And so, basically, Governor Andrew Curtin of Pennsylvania um, asked... <laughs> For 13,000 able-bodied men to volunteer to help preserve the Union. And um, so they built this camp, Mm -hmm. and they started training people. Okay. And um... And one of the most interesting links in my article is 75,000 volunteers. That's a a link. That's a link, and the... Uh, when I hover over it and look at the link that it sends me to, it sends me to seventy-five thousand volunteers. What? <laughs> Why? What? So, um, apparently, there's an article out there called seventy-five thousand volunteers. volunteers, and all of the weird iterations throughout history there are of there being seventy-five thousand volunteers. Um. You know what? Just for that, we're going to go Camp Curtin, I think. <laughs> I, I I mean, like, as much as I want to find out about the... the I know where the Japanese bonsai charge is. That might be an interesting <laughs> article for the first, like, 30 seconds, but I think it's going to devolve into just being, like, ugh, really quick. <laughs> it's suicide and, charges. And like, there's not point, too much room we're to gonna go We're going to get World War II again. We we're, will always have the option to go It's back. going to come up. You Every five episodes, we yeah. hit something yeah. involving World War II. You're right. Exactly. All right. Camp Curtain. And from Camp Curtain, 75,000 <laughs> volunteers. Uh, it takes us to President Lincoln's 75,000 volunteers. As opposed to the other people's 75,000 <laughs> volunteers. So, yeah, it's just like I mentioned before, Abraham Lincoln called for 75,000 men to enlist and like right after the bombardment and surrender of Fort Sumter. And some slave states refused to send troops against their neighboring slave states, with the result that uh, most such states also declared secession from the United States and joined the Confederate States. So there was so a time. This order alone? <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, was there a point in time where, like, if you were in, like, South Carolina during the Civil War or right before the Civil War, and Lincoln was like, hey, uh, I, well, wait, where is Fort Sumter in South Carolina? <laughs> that's that's uh, a pretty important thing question. about what I was about to ask. Um, yeah, it was in South Carolina. Okay, so better better thing. If you were in, uh, like, say, Georgia, for example, mm-hmm. you were living in Georgia, there was a time when President Lincoln could have been like, okay, I need 75,000 volunteers, <laughs> and you could have volunteered to join the Army for the North, essentially, before Georgia <laughs> seceded and then became yeah. uh, part of the South. That's, that's really interesting to me. Um... So, until the early uh, 20th century, the United States relied on calling out militia and volunteers rather than expanding the regular army. However, there were restrictions on the number of men and the length of time they could serve that the President of the United States, had, uh, as opposed to a state governor, could summon. Hmm. Um, so, then there's also a declaration where... Uh, 
Lincoln asks for people to help out. She's like a really, like, really friendly draft. <laughs> like, it's not anywhere near as aggressive as the the Vietnam War. It was just kind of like a, <laughs> hey, uh, there's a conflict. <laughs> we need a lot of people. <laughs> we, do you, do you want to help? Kind of need uh, some uh, help here. Well, um, I'll, I'll tell you what. Go ahead and show up at this time in this place, and uh, we're, we're, we'll keep you for a little bit, a little bit <laughs> of time. But uh, but we won't like you know keep you for forever. Here's how long we think you <laughs> might serve. And uh, by volunteer we mean get paid. We're gonna pay you. You're gonna be part of the army. It's <laughs> we're gonna pay you. So it's like volunteer to start having a job. So I mean like if you're unemployed, it might be a good thing. <laughs> well, interesting thing is, uh, rather than a call for seventy five thousand military volunteers from any American state or territory, uh, these two proclamations that they sent out. They called for a specific number of volunteers from each state, including slave states in the South that had not yet declared their secession. So it's like you said with, you know, there was a people time. in the South could just be like, all right, I'm joining the North. Yeah, and they had the option. And then their state is like, we're seceding from the Union. They're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be fighting against my friends and fa- uh, family. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I probably already was because I obviously joined an army to fight against this. So maybe maybe that wasn't actually too different from what was going on at home in the first place. Some of the northern states uh, were very enthusiastic. And um, Indiana is one example of a state that offered twice as many volunteers as, question, as requested. Uh, Massachusetts volunteers reached Washington, D.C. as early as April 19th, which would have been... Let's see, when was this? Uh, oh, so like four days after, I think, right? April 19th, yeah. Like four days after this proclamation thing. Um, oof. And uh, Governor... Isham Harris of Tennessee stated in a telegram to Lincoln, Tennessee will furnish not a single man for the purpose of coercion, but 50,000 if necessary for the defense of our rights and those of our southern brothers. And uh, Kentucky declared they would not send volunteers to a northern army intent on subjugating their southern brethren. Um... Virginia, who had been requested to furnish three regiments totaling 5,340 men and officers, had stated in the past his its intent for uh, to remain neutral, and in a letter to Lincoln, declared that since the president had chosen to inaugurate civil war, he would be sent no troops from the old dominion. Hmm. Yeah, so... Sounds like some of the southern states were like, uh, I'm not really down pass. with that. <laughs> Solid pass. A lot of the northern states were like, woohoo, let's send a lot of people. And that's good because they were the states that had that many people. <laughs> I think if you asked at that point in history the state of Texas to send 75,000 people, you would have asked them to send more population <laughs> than they had. Yeah. Oh, it looks like Lincoln actually made a second call just a couple weeks later. For an additional 42,000 volunteers. So he increased the regular U.S. Army by 22,714 men and called for 42,000 more volunteers to enlist for three years. And in July, the U.S. Congress sanctioned Lincoln's acts and authorized 500,000 additional volunteers. Holy goodness. Half a million. (laughs) Now that's an army. Yeah. There's a link to Dragoons in here. I don't cool. think it's what you think it is. <laughs> well, it sounds cool. I mean, it but does, but I, I'm, I, I'm, my, my basis for it being cool is is StarCraft. And I know it's not the thing <laughs> from StarCraft, so I'm kind of like, I'm resistant like, to it. It's so close to Dragons that it sounds cool, but it's probably just like a platoon. It's probably like a catapult or something. See, I, I was thinking it's like a group of... Like a um, group in the army, like 
you have like regiments. Yeah, you yeah, have yeah, there's regiments of infantry, and, artillery, cavalry, dragoons, and one of mounted rifles. Though it is kind of interesting that there's like okay, there's guys on ho- there's guys on foot, guys on horses, guys on dragons. Who, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't honestly know what it would be because it's like. You have the cannon guys, you have the foot soldier guys, you have the horse guys. What else is there? Yeah, they don't have planes, they don't have it's tanks. It's a civil war. It's like <laughs> what is a dragoon? <laughs> you really do kind of want to know, don't you? But it's probably going to be a letdown. It's just going to be a letdown because it's going to be an outmoded means of military combat. It's from <laughs> the civil war, so we can we know that the reason we don't know it, it deep down, we know it's because it's as good as dragons are, which is to say, non-existent. <laughs> now for good reason but at the same time is there really a whole lot else to go to from here that we really really want to go to yeah i mean we have things like slave states uh declared secession confederate states abraham lincoln militia the bombardment and surrender of fort sumter can go as broad as this entire American Civil War. Or as specific as Beriah Magoffin. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I really don't know. I mean, I thought there would be more interesting stuff. I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of leaning towards Confederate states or declared secession. I want to do declared secession. Secession in the USA. Secession in the USA. Secession in the USA. Okay. Got into being almost like a Rage Against the Machine song there. I gotta be careful. Gotta gotta monitor my rage levels a little bit. Never want to go full Tom Morello. In the context of the United States, secession primarily refers to the withdrawal of one or more states from the Union that constitutes the Union-ited states. But it may also loosely refer to a leaving uh, state or territory that uh, goes away to form its own separate territory or new state, or to the severing of an area from a city or from a county from a state. Um threats and aspirations to secede from the United States or judgments or arguments justifying secession have been a feature of the country's politics almost since we started out. Some have argued for secession as a constitutional right and others has from a natural right of revolution. Uh, In Texas versus White, for example, the United States Supreme Court ruled unilateral secession unconstitutional uh, while commenting that revolution or consent of the United States could lead to a successful secession. So it's not impossible, those of you who are out there who are <laughs> interested in the uh, secession, because I know, man, what a popular <laughs> thing to actually like try to secede. Uh, yep. The yeah. most serious <laughs> attempt at secession was advanced in the years 1860 and 1861, of course. Really? Uh, well, yeah. I mean... <laughs> Uh, 11 southern states each declared secession from the United States and joined together to form the Confederate States of America. This movement, of course, collapsed in 1865 with the defeat of the Confederate forces by Union armies in the American Civil War. Uh, A 2008 Zogby International poll found that 22% of Americans believed that, quote, any state or region has the right to peaceably secede and become an independent republic. I can guarantee you I know exactly what 22% of the country it was. (laughs) Hint, it's the same 22% that did it the first time. Uh, A 2014 Reuters Ipsos poll showed 24% of Americans supported their state seceding from the Union if necessary. What would possibly make that necessary? Um, 53% opposed the idea of of, uh, secession. Republicans were somewhat more supportive of secession than Democrats. Respondents cited issues like gridlock, governmental overreach, oh, of course the Affordable Care Act. What can't be about the Affordable Care Act? and a loss of faith in the federal government as for reasons for secession. 
hey man if it's uh you know not working just leave try it on your own that's the that's try the it on your own and fail for the exact same reasons yeah that's, that's gonna do you a lot of good you'll 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 save a lot of time by doing the exact same thing <laughs> failing in the exact same I way mean, and learning the exact same lesson clearly establishing a system of government is easy so you know oh yeah like governing hundreds of millions I mean, of people is i mean like <laughs> like you know it only took us you know over 200 years to get where we are today you ever had a one-on-one conversation (laughs) with a friend and have them horribly misunderstand you and feel really awkward about it later (laughs) try magnifying that with 299 million more 299 million more people that you can't see (laughs) and that you don't have any indication about how they're reacting and then try to like literally dictate their lives (laughs) you might mess up (laughs) Like, it's all just a thing of, like, you try something that you think will benefit everybody, you see how it's failing, you know, what the good parts were, and then you think about, all right, so if I take the good parts and I rework those with something else that will help kind of even it out a little bit, then, you know, we'll take a step in the right direction. Or you could just be like, you know what? I don't like it. I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to start my own thing. And <laughs> they'll probably, uh, you know, get somewhere in 200 years. <laughs> Maybe. we will get to where we already are. They'll get to exactly where yeah. we are now because I think that's kind of like the, uh, the rule of thumb. Either you start a um, new nation successfully and it becomes really successful and then it just kind of stops doing yeah. that. Look at how many countries in the world are like in turmoil as they have like you know a fallen leadership yeah. and they're trying to bring in because new leadership and trying to establish a completely different exactly. system of government and that's the other option and the other option like, is that you just <laughs> do that over and over again every like yeah. five years ad nauseum it's like it just when you try to do that it just kind of throws the whole system into chaos and you're just like you don't make any progress no because you're too busy chasing your own tail, trying to get just the basics back yeah. into, into uh, some sort of working semblance of order. <laughs> it's really hard to govern people. <laughs> it's not the easiest thing. It's, it's very, very complicated. Uh, Do you want to know why people system. hate lawyers? Because lawyers understand the law. Because the law is really complicated. <laughs> that's why people. That's why people hate lawyers deep down. It's not because the lawyers understand how to bend the law. They actually understand the law. And the law is not understandable except for a very pretty penny because it's really hard it, to figure out. Yeah. It's a, it's, it takes a it's lot of spent, time. It's hundreds of years of like tweaking things, adding little things, changing certain things. And making and, sure the wording <laughs> is like exactly yeah, the way you want it to be. Then you get into situations where people are like, hey, I'm going to sue you because of the way you worded that and it made me feel bad. Yep. And then they're like, ah. Okay, we got to word a little bit differently to make sure... <laughs> that it doesn't somehow bring another libel lawsuit down yeah. upon us. That's not a very desirable thing to have in the news. <laughs> so, yeah it's, yeah, it's tough stuff here. It's not all so cut and dry. No, no, no. Of course, it is exactly what the United States did in the first place to get away from Britain. Yes, but we had already, we were already kind of governing ourselves for the most part. Like you yeah. know, like they we came over here. We didn't have representation we were like, there. Yeah, and we were just kind of like, all right, we need to figure something out to kind mm-hmm. of bring everybody together. And it was a lot smaller at the time, right? So it was a lot easier to be like, all right, so on this small scale, let's try and work something out. And as we grew, then they were kind of like, all right, we need to adapt to new, you know, levels of people and. Then they're like, you know what? We got our own thing going here. You're not really doing anything. Nope. <laughs> but we're still paying you. And we don't have so, anybody going over there to represent us. So yeah, let's just kind just of stop you know, be our own thing from now. And know. for whatever reason, at that point in time, that didn't sound reasonable. <laughs> so they had to start a war over it. And yeah, and Britain was just like, hey, that's not cool. And they're like, 
Oh, yeah, you're still over there. Wait a minute. We want you still. (laughs) Yeah, like, they completely forgot about the United States, more or less, and then decided that, oh, no, 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 we actually really did want that. But, I mean, that was the beginning of their downfall, too, because here we are. The, uh... You get to go for so long, and then you know, that's the good option. The good option <laughs> is you have an empire, and then you lose it. The bad option is you yeah. just conti- continuously destroy your own empire. You destroy every sense <laughs> of uh, government you've ever had. Because the, the problem with human nature is there's always that ebb and flow of, like, no, we can do better, and then that need to have <laughs> leadership, which then needs, leads to the need to uh, ultimately appoint somebody who's ultimately corruptible because they mm-hmm. wanted to have a position of power. And, you know, it's just a vicious cycle. Yeah. And as soon as you appoint somebody like that, then you're on the fast track to having people get angry and rise up again <laughs> because the government's not doing it right. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times people at the bottom of the system tend to oversimplify what it takes to, you know, at the top of the system to, like, work everything out. And so they get frustrated, but they don't really understand the nuance of everything. It's, yeah. And but, the you know, problem is that, like, even them? the Cliff's Notes version isn't that, like, complicated. It's just, <laughs> you know... You, you 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 lose faith in systems of government, you overthrow governments, you don't do it for the right reasons or mm. with the right tools or thoroughly enough, and then you end up having, you know, communist Russia. You just, you overthrow a government to appoint the mafia over a series of very little time, and then it just becomes more apparent over years. <laughs> and then you kill a whole bunch of blind street musicians for no reason. No. They were promoting Ukrainian culture. That is inexcusable. I don't understand why. I still understand why Ukrainian culture was bad. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's. It would be like this. I don't know. It would be like trying to get rid of all the people that like country music. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not like it's just not like something you do. It's, it's not something you like. Yeah, you don't like that. It, that yeah. is the, as big of a thing as it but is, it, but you don't you don't, you don't gather them in one place. <laughs> yeah, you don't gather. You don't have like Toby Heath come out of her retirement to go to a stadium and then be like, "Okay, guess what? Yeah. Mustard gas." You it's don't just do ridiculous. That. It's, it's completely absurd. Like, it's one of those things that just doesn't make any sense. Oh my god! I love how per- persecuted banderists comes up more. <laughs> And more, regardless of what we're talking about, like we don't even need to it go to the Ark to every anymore. situation. There is a persecuted banderist in every situation. That was There's the great a victory. Persecuted banderist in all of us. They never could kill them all, <laughs> never entirely, because they were here. Yes, they were in our hearts the whole time. <laughs> well, you know, I have an interesting avenue to take here from this article. Yeah, there is a link to Hamilton, as in the musical, as in the person. Which would eventually, one would suppose, bear forth a link to a very popular American musical. Most likely. I I can't imagine the article for Alexander Hamilton does not mention the The musical musical about Alexander Hamilton. But we've said that about so many articles, especially... I'm so scared after the Clip Show episode. I'm so afraid. (laughs) That's exactly what's going to happen. We're in an article where Pigeon is mentioned 20 times, and there's no link there's to no it. There's no link to it. So, I mean, <laughs> like they could, they could have, device. at this rate, they could have an entire section about the musical and not link to the musical. That's true. There may not That's even be a musical. The article for, it, for the, the extent of the Wikipedia article for the musical may, in fact, be contained within <laughs> the article for Anna. That's true. The himself. link to the musical article probably redirects. It could redirect to the, to the, to the man, man, the myth. Yeah. The, the legend. But you know what? It's very true. We're still going there. Yeah. Because we can still talk about the musical within the context of his actual article. Because so obviously it's based on a true story. Exactly. So the things that happen are still, with a few exceptions, remarkably close to exactly what did come to pass. Yeah. Give or take a rap battle. <laughs> So Alexander Hamilton lived from January 11, 
1755 or 1757 take your pick uh and you gotta love that when they don't know when somebody was born but it's like down to a precise date and they couldn't be bothered to figure out what the year was maybe it's just like the handwriting they're like they're "Ah, like is that a five it could be either Ah." but 1755 or 1757, whichever. And then he uh, died July 12th, 1804. One of the youngest founding fathers to uh, bite the bullet or just, you know, kind of soak the bullet from Aaron Burr into his body. But spoiler alert for those of you who don't know. Um, but we'll get there, I suppose, in a minute. He was an American statesman, Alexander Hamilton, and one of the founding fathers of the United States, an influential interpreter and promoter of the United States Constitution, as well as the founder of the nation's financial system, the founder of the Federalist Party, the founder of the United States Coast Guard, and the founder of the New York Post. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That tabloid that you see at Walmart that has all the fake news. Yeah, he, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton founded it. I'm not kidding. Yes, yes, that one. Obviously, the same it has one. Uh, gone in a different direction than it started out, probably. It's a long-lived publication. You can have, you can either become the Wall Street Post over 200 <laughs> years, or you can become the New York Post over 200 years. Yeah, something, the, something. Little can decisions go awry. over the course of the time. You know, somebody at one point is like, ah, let's uh, put an article about this in there. Whatever doesn't kill you <laughs> makes you stranger. That's <laughs> that's that's the uh, the New York Post for you. The only thing that uh, made the Wall Street Journal stranger was how they started making photostatic pictures appear entirely in black and white and in newsprint <laughs> remember how they used to do that before they, 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 they were one of those weird holdout papers where they had visual representations of pictures but it was all in black and white and it wasn't photographs it was literally like <laughs> lithographs of like events that happened and they kept doing it for i don't know until like the mid-2000s and then they were just finally like fine we'll just use pictures it was weird but i uh, guess we have the technology but they didn't want to use it they had the technology for years before that Anyway, um, as the first Secretary of the Treasury, Hamilton was the main author of the economic policies of the George Washington administration. He took the lead in the funding of states' debts by the federal government, as well as the establishment of a national bank, a system of tariffs, and friendly trade relations with Britain. His vision included a strong central government led by a vigorous executive branch, a strong commercial economy with a national bank and support for manufacturing, plus a strong military. This was challenged by Virginian agrarians Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who formed a rival party. They favored strong states based in rural America and protected by states' militias as opposed to a national navy and army. They denounced Hamilton as too friendly toward Britain and toward monarchy in general and too oriented toward cities, business, and banking because, you know, that debate hasn't really gone anywhere at all in the last 250 years. Yep. It's always the same thing. It It really is. The themes are never really all that different deep down. And that's that's kind of the interesting thing, how much progress we've made technologically, scientifically, even socially, while still having the same core problems. Yeah. But, you know, I think um, what's good is, uh, like, living in a tension between the two opposing ideas. Like, you get too far to one side, it's no good. Too far to the other side, it's no good. Yep. What you need is one side kind of being like, eh, and the other side being like, eh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you, have- you need to have that, like, I, both sides kind of being like, now, wait a minute. Uh, what about this, you know? Yeah. And it is probably to the benefit of that oppositional force that Hamilton encountered early on in the nation's birth that allowed us to facilitate any sort of reconciliation after something like the Civil War. Because, I mean, ultimately, the Civil War was just a manifestation of those... Right. I mean, in addition to being about blatantly slavery, there right. was also... part. There were also pieces of these debates that had been ongoing for eons, mm-hmm. uh, uh, eons, relatively speaking, 60 years. Couldn't couldn't, ki- couldn't keep it together for more than 60-some years. <laughs> like, seriously. Yeah. Kind of pitiful. Kind of pitiful. Yeah, it's... We've crazy. done better since, though. Yeah, we've learned to fight not ourselves. <laughs> but, 
it's always a step in the right that's, direction. That's exactly right. <laughs> get the get the army to fight outside of the own or your own country against yeah. not your own people. But then you take that too far, and you're like, "All right, let's fight everybody." And then it's wait, like, that's not a good idea. That's a bad let's idea. Let's still fight everybody. Uh, maybe not a good idea, but let's keep doing it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Let's do it in a less notable way. We won't <laughs> declare war on everybody. We'll just fight them all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you fight a war. You never say you're fighting a war. Yeah. You just you put go. soldiers someplace and have them shoot people and then, <laughs> you know, just say, well, I don't know. I don't know what they were doing there. <laughs> I say that ironically now, but I feel like, you know, we're not far from that yeah. kind of an event happening. But yeah. I don't know how they got there. There's 50,000 soldiers. <laughs> hey, I didn't send them there, you know. There's just 75,000 guys who volunteered. <laughs> 75,000 volunteers. They went there of their own volition. In but, any yeah. case, uh, uh, Mr. Hamilton lived a full life. Basically, uh, was born uh, from uh, of, of a Scotsman and a lady of the night. He was born out of wedlock. Uh, of to a woman of French descent by the name of Rachel Fossette. Now, his dad left, and then Hamilton was kind of left to fend for himself uh, in the Caribbean. But he did so pretty successfully, despite there being a number of setbacks, like his mother getting sick and dying, and any family he went to go live with getting sick and, well, mentally and killing themselves, and a hurricane hit his house, and he was able to somehow like write about his hur- the, his, him surviving the hurricane to, to great acclaim and notoriety mm-hmm. to the point where he was able to uh, raise money and awareness and get away from the Caribbean <laughs> and then go to the so, United States and then go to school. And My question is, could we theoretically see a child Alexander Hamilton in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. You know, hypothetically, we should be able to do that. He was in the Caribbean <laughs> at a time when pirates would have sailed around on ships and the British would have had an extensive presence in the Caribbean. I feel like that would be a good inclusion to uh, reinvigorate those movies. They may as well. I mean, you know, even if they didn't start out at that point in history, they might as well be there now. Yeah. Just do it. I mean, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Apparently, Johnny Depp's time, character is timeless and immortal anyway. Who cares? <laughs> Just make him be in the movie with him. So the short of it is, is that uh, uh, basically George Washington made Hamilton his right-hand man during the Revolution. And, of course, that made him pretty favorable for uh, Washington to appoint him as Secretary of State once the war was done. That being said, though, his views were pretty centrist compared to a lot of people at the time who had just gotten away from a monarchy and were understandably a little bit scared of centralized power. So, um, even though Hamilton knew that there was an element to that that was going to make things much more efficient and operate a lot smoother, he had a lot of opposition from people who arguably understood farming better than they understood economics. And, um... Just you know, he he had he had to fight a lot of people off, um, but he also was very persistent and brilliant in how he set things up, and basically was able to argue people into uh, losing battles <laughs> so often that we now have a national bank where we initially had a lot of people against setting up a national bank. So mm. that gives you an idea. Also, he made Wall Street like exist. He made Wall <laughs> Street happen. Like, Wall Street wouldn't have existed. Literally, it wouldn't... I mean, it would probably still be a street in New York, but right. <laughs> it wouldn't be, like, what it is. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only problem was that, of course, somebody who's able to... Uh, be in the public eye and argue with people so intellectually that they uh, ultimately have to cave... Uh, from their deeply uh, cherished stances, maybe leave some people a little bitter. 
So he had a lot of people poking around his personal life. They they found and uh, were threatened to reveal a uh, sex scandal that he had. He was married and he slept out of wedlock with another woman and people found out about it because he was ultimately being extorted by a guy by the name of James Reynolds uh, to sleep with a 23-year-old Maria Reynolds at the time. Um, and uh, eventually some members of Congress that didn't like him were like, hey, uh, we know that you have views and you want to do certain things, but guess what we found out about? We found out about this. <laughs> and um, so Alexander Hamilton was like, well, guess what? I don't care. I'm going <laughs> to tell everybody about it first. And they were like, you think that's going to help? And Hamilton was like, yeah. And they were like, um, I don't think that'll help. But, but and he was like, I'm going to do it anyway. And he did it anyway. So um, that that kind of diminished his uh, influence significantly, but not enough to, when a close presidential race came along, uh, have him not be somebody that was turned to for a very thoughtful and uh, well-rounded opinion. Basically, what happened was John uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson ran by, against a guy by the name of Aaron Burr during the presidential election of 1800. It was really close. And one of the deciding voices in which way people ultimately went was uh, Hamilton. And Hamilton said, eh, you know what, Burr's been my friend for a really long time, and he was. Uh, and I hate Jefferson. Jefferson's my bitter enemy, and he was. <laughs> and, but uh, I'm going to vote for Jefferson just because uh, uh, he, he, he he, he's got some beliefs, you know? Yeah. And that was, that was it. <laughs> and so that kind of started a problem with his friend Aaron Burr who was struck by lightning several times and was already a little <laughs> bit crazy and that would um, make anyone crazy I mean yeah you can you could only hold the electricity inside of you so well after a, <laughs> after a fashion so um, I wonder if getting struck by lightning once makes you more receptive to it later it just makes it you, like, you're marked you're marked for the rest <laughs> of your days if you survive it like you're just like it, it knows where to find you yeah it will get you again <laughs> if it wants to. It's like death in the Final Destination yeah, movies. Yeah, you can't get around it. Um, so ultimately, he would become in a Hamilton would become in a public feud with Aaron Burr because they would uh, disagree over more and more over time, um, and eventually it would rise to the level of them wanting to have a duel with each other. Uh, Hamilton didn't want to actually kill his friend, and he didn't think his friend would kill him, so he threw his shot into the ground or the air. It doesn't really matter. The point is is that he didn't deliberately try to shoot Burr, and that was very clear to all people present. And then Burr did, in fact, <laughs> shoot him, like, point blank, only to regret it immensely very shortly thereafter because so, he was totally <laughs> expecting Hamilton to shoot him based on what he was seeing. So, so Hamilton really could have won the duel. He really could have. But he chose not to. He just didn't feel like it. So, you know, he, he made a gamble, but in some ironic twist, um, he ultimately defeated Burr historically because anybody who tells that story now views <laughs> Alexander Hamilton as the hero, and now Aaron Burr right. is this, this murderer, this crazy guy who was zapped by lightning <laughs> a whole bunch of times, and he's kind of an idiot. When I mean, they were both they were intellectual equals. They went mm. to the same colleges. They did the same stuff. They both came from very similar backgrounds. It's just that, you know, through a weird, premeditated and sort of calculated, almost kind of Japanese bonsai sort of suicide <laughs> attempt, like uh, Hamilton went down, sort of swinging, sort of not, and became more mm. legendary for it. And he went on the ten dollar bill, so you know he was. He knew what he was doing. Yep. He he, he ended up being remembered uh, at least monetarily, yeah. if not, you know, fully fondly until the Hamilton. And don't get me wrong, like, even then not fully fondly, still a f character full of uh, uh, flaws and downfalls. Mm -hmm. Not not like a hero by any means. Just somebody who had views and fought for them in a way that is inspirational for anybody who's ever had opinions. Yeah. You know? So he's considered essentially the third most important of the uh, founding fathers, founders, right after G.W. and uh, T.J. Well, te I mean, technically, Lincoln's not a founding father, but he's on the $5 bill. 
of the so, monetary founding fathers. Monetary he is, founding yes. fathers, yes. <laughs> so who's on the five dollar bill before Lincoln? Because obviously wow. they had to have somebody. Maybe, maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't need five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. They might have only had one dollar bills, and then a whole bunch of like change. I, but then I who's on the like penny? That's okay. That, oh, okay. Now here's a question that, for you: Who's more important, Lincoln because he's on the penny, or Washington because he's on the one dollar bill? Because what do you have more of? Washington. That was. Yeah, you gotta do that. Because you, you gotta got, do that. He's because you see the thing is though, uh, Lincoln is on the five dollar bill, which is pretty common. I mean, obviously second most common after the one dollar bill, but he's also on the penny, which is super common and annoying. But I guess maybe that's what evens it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get, you yeah. Get, <laughs> you get the anno- you get the useful currency and the annoying currency. Which one do you want to be on? <laughs> But, Are but, you on the one that's not that's more functional and less annoying? Congratulations. I, I feel kind of bad though because for Lincoln because Washington gets the one dollar bill, which is you know like everybody uses it, and it's kind of like impossible not to use it, and it's, nobody really gets annoyed at one dollar bills. No, and he also gets the quarter, which is the only pe- like coin that's that people useful. care about. People like that coin. <laughs> All the other coins, people just throw somewhere. That, Doesn't matter. Like, and they're like, "Hey, can I trade all this in for a quarter?" And then you have Ben Franklin, who's not a real president, <laughs> not actually like a politician, really, and is on the two like monetary amounts that you sure you could have them, yeah, but they're really cumbersome. And mm-hmm. like, why would you? Like, it's the, he's on the pre-JFK fifty cent piece, and he's on the hundred dollar bill. <laughs> Between the two, like they're both the the equivalent of like the well, I have this, but I really don't want to. Like this is this is too. I much would to rather happen. have smaller increments. Yes, this is this is actually stupid. This is too this much. Is unwieldy. <laughs> this uh, is only good if it's a whole bunch of them strapped together in a briefcase. But, but <laughs> yeah, the, also Washington. If you think about it, both of his pieces of currency go into vending machines. Uh-huh. Like they are the preferred method for vending machines. Wait, well, that's true. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, obviously he, you can put in nickels arcades, and dimes. Yep. But, and you can put in a five or a ten, but it's like, you know what? I just need a dollar. I'm just going to put in a dollar. Or I'm going right. to put in a quarter or two. Why would you do anything else? It's all in increments of one or quarters. Okay, so there were some $5 bills before Lincoln before Lincoln's time, but they honestly, there weren't many. Like, most of them, huh. like, there were coins. Instead of oh, bills. they were coins. Um, so the $5 bill came on the scene in like the 1860s, ironically right during the Civil War, probably <laughs> because for no coincidence, that was like, that was because they wanted metal for other stuff. They didn't right, want it for yeah, okay, yeah. coinage anymore. Makes sense. So, and guess who was on the first $5 bill? You won't guess because it's probably the last person you'll probably guess. Probably not Lincoln. Because it was exactly the man that is on the ten dollar bill now. Really? <laughs> it was Hamilton at first. Huh. Hamilton, then Jackson, and then they used like the same portraits on the ten and twenty huh. later on when they when they when they created those bills. And then eventually, uh, in eighteen ninety one, Ulysses S. Grant was on the five dollar bill. This <laughs> is the opposite of what you would have thought. Yeah. It wasn't until like uh, looks like sometime 1914 that they finally had a five dollar bill hmm. with Lincoln on it. Wow, that late. Yep. Hmm. I guess you kind of need time before you slap somebody's face on a currency. I guess so. I mean, well, yeah. But then again, I'm sure in like. Roman times, they probably just slapped the current, you know, Roman emperor or Caesar on there because he would want his face on there. I actually found something interesting in this Alexander Hamilton article that is quite relevant to us personally. In June 1783... A group of disgruntled soldiers from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, sent Congress a petition demanding their back pay. 
when they began to march toward Philadelphia, Congress charged Hamilton and two others with intercepting the mob. Hamilton requested militia from Pennsylvania's Supreme Executive Council, but was turned down. Hamilton instructed Assistant Secretary of War William Jackson to intercept the men, and Jackson was unsuccessful. The mob arrived in Philadelphia, and the soldiers proceeded to harangue Congress for their pay. The president of the Continental Congress, John Dickinson, feared that the Pennsylvania state militia was unreliable and refused its help. Hamilton argued that Congress ought to adjourn to Princeton, New Jersey. Congress agreed and relocated there. Frustrated with the weakness of the central government, Hamilton, while in Princeton, drafted a call to revise the Articles of Confederation. This resolution contained many features of the future U.S. Constitution, including a strong federal government with the ability to collect taxes and raise an army. It also included it the separation of powers into executive, le- legislative, and judicial branches. So it's all because of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that he started coming up with the basics of our of our government, <laughs> which is really kind of interesting. Our wow, that's it's actually pretty cool though. Mm-hmm. Good job, Lancaster, causing a ruckus till they come up with like good ideas on how to make you stop it. <laughs> we never did find out if they actually got their money. Neither did they. That was the whole point. Three, if you, if you They're hide, still standing there today. They created three branches of government to hide the money under one of the cups and they shuffled it around and it's been going back and forth. It's called the philosopher's legacy. No. Um, whoa, they made Hamilton's life into a musical. Wow. Did they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. How would they have done that? There's also a 1931 film. Wait, what? And a 1917 play. What? Which is also <laughs> set apart from his appearance on the ten dollar bill. <laughs> that's his. That's a. That's, that's his, his place claim, in pop culture. Claim to fame there. Yep. Claim to fame in pop culture. <laughs> I'm the guy on the ten dollar bill. You know. You might have heard me. <laughs> but uh, the play and the film did not attract much attention from American popular culture. But, as you most likely well know, the Broadway musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda did, in fact, make a huge smashing hit with American popular culture. Show so was I, I assume we are going to this. Just yeah, the show, right the show was called An Achievement of Historical and Cultural Reimagining. Uh... The headlong rise of one self-made immigrant becomes the story of America in the show. And that was the other important thing, is that even in old-school America, even in 1700s America, Hamilton being born in the Caribbean was a big thing. Even (laughs) though he was a white dude who, you know, had accrued some standing and power and money, nobody cared because he was an immigrant. (laughs) So they still were like very racist towards him and it didn't, it didn't make a difference. He was not born in the Americas. Mm. So he, he was born on the islands around the Americas. And because of that slight geographical discrepancy, he was the one everybody was, you know, uh, they, they literally chastised him for being, um, from, from outside the United States. Mm. But a Hamilton, an American musical, is a sung-through musical about the life of a w- American founding father, Alexander Hamilton, with music lyrics and book by Lin-Manuel Miranda. The show, inspired by the 2004 biography Alexander Hamilton by historian Ron Chernow, achieved both critical cl- acclaim and box office success. So it actually made its off-Broadway debut at the Public Theater in February 2015, where its engagement was sold out. And the show transferred to Broadway in August of the same year at the Richard Rogers Theater. On Broadway, it received enthusiastic critical reception and unprecedented advanced box office sales. And in 2016, Hamilton received a record-setting 16 Tony nominations, and it won 11 of them, including Best Musical, 
and was also the recipient of the 2016 Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album and the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Wow, Pulitzer Prize, man. That, that I mean, <laughs> like, you didn't think it was going to win everything, <laughs> but it just was like... All they need to do is make it into a movie to win the Oscar. There you go. It's going to eventually. <laughs> but uh, the prior off-Broadway production of Hamilton won the 2015 Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Musical, as well as seven other Drama Desk Awards out of a total 14 nominations. They won literally half of the possible <laughs> awards. Oh, man. Well, I mean, it is that good. Yeah. It I, I really mean, is. I, obviously, I haven't seen it. But even but just, listening just listening to the soundtrack, to you just know it's. You don't even. Need, that's the thing is like somebody. People could literally just stand on a stage dressed in whatever, doing nothing. <laughs> just singing straight <laughs> yeah, forward. It could literally just be a concert. And that would be fine. Yeah. It would still tell a really. You would still be crying at the end. Yeah. Because of the, the nature of the music. And the, But there is that documentary about. That was really well done. Yeah. Yeah, um, where you actually get to see like you get to see the, bits and pieces of it, but also the process of how they went about the research and how yeah. to like make the storytelling elements actually work despite the history. And there are surprisingly few concessions to the reality, but mm-hmm. uh, the ones that they did make were deliberate. Um, some things were omitted for the sake of ease of access to the story to make things more palatable to mm-hmm. you know. I don't know how many Joe Schmoes really go see Broadway shows, but like, you know, to make it a very uh, culturally relevant message, they kept the show and thus the characters very tight. They made families that were formerly like eight or ten people, three. <laughs> like, they just were like, let's cut to the chase. So, uh, some of the reason why uh, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda started making this his passion project, though, was uh, while on vacation from performing in his hit Broadway show, In the Heights, uh, he, he actually had a chance to sit down and read the Ron Chernow biography of Alexander Hamilton in an airport. And even after just a few chapters, Lin-Manuel Miranda began to envision the life of Hamilton as a musical and researched whether a stage musical of Hamilton's life had been created or not. All he found was that a play of Hamilton's story had been done in Broadway starring George Arliss as Alexander Hamilton in 1917. But after that point, he was like, hey, you know what? That's not a musical, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Also, apparently nobody cared about that one. Yeah. Uh, So he began a project entitled, actually, The Hamilton Mixtape. Uh, on nice. <laughs> May 12, 2009, Miranda was invited to perform music and at, from In the Heights at the White House, Evening of Poetry, Music, and the Spoken Word, but instead he performed the first song from the Hamilton mixtape, a rough version of what would later become Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton's opening number. He spent a year after that working on My Shot, another early number from the show. It's amazing when you find out how long he spent coming up with each song. Like, like one year to really like make like, everything. That's I mean nuts. Obviously, it paid off because they're all very, very like tight and well done and directly integrated into the story. Like yeah. there's very little fat on that play. Like I mean, yeah, you can't argue with his method. Like cause, yeah, <laughs> you know, works. like listening to the song, you're not like oh. If it, the thing is, is like every every lyric, and you know how densely lyrical rap is, but every mm-hmm. lyric, all the same in the show, is still moving and drives each character's yeah. development and the action itself forward. Like, which yeah, every is single word in the, you, those you songs have are plays like... which don't have to focus on music, which don't have to focus on rhythm, which don't have to focus <laughs> on any of these other elements that still can't manage to do that. Yeah, that. They're, is I mean, impressive. You have musicals that are frivolous that like <laughs> deliberately find excuses in the plot to be able to fit in a musical number. Yeah. Like almost everything you watch has some type of filler somewhere to pad it out a little bit or to, you know, whatever. But like yeah, this 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 is this, amazing in that after a few times of listening to it, you you finally figure out that after a two and a half hour musical of there being very little fat, only enough human interaction to make it seem genuine, and um, a whole story told. You you realize that this is the shortest possible version yeah. 
of this story, you can tell and still really hit all of the proper notes. Yeah. And um, it's still really effective, though, all mm-hmm. the same. Um, now, the interesting thing, though, is that eventually, I guess, they s- decided upon a name change for the show uh, because it was not known as the Hamilton mixtape when it was finally done. Um, the Hamilton mixtape, in point of fact, was the name of an album released once the show had become popular, revealing some of the outtakes, B-sides, and original works Lin-Manuel Melham Miranda had done on the show prior to being debuted on Broadway. Um, so, interestingly, there were several people who had uh, the roles in the show in the um, uh, a workshop cast. Uh, there was a workshop that he started to start developing this uh, uh, musical and uh, only David Diggs and Christopher Jackson, who I think play Madison, James Madison and George Washington in the actual play, stayed on. And then he had to cast everything else differently for the off-Broadway debut. And uh, in the off-Broadway debut, once that got up and running, everybody knew they had something good. And so while they didn't all want to be there for the development process, like once it was developed, only the guy who played King George III left. <laughs> because they could get Jonathan Groff, who was already like a Disney star by that point. So was, who is uh, he? Jonathan Groff, the voice of a. Uh, I think he's the voice of the. I forget if he's the voice. I think he's the voice of the good dude in Frozen. Oh, uh, okay. He's either the good dude or the bad dude. <laughs> he's not Olaf. I know who Olaf is. He's not Josh <laughs> Gad. <laughs> So the musical takes us through the, the events of Alexander Hamilton's life, which we have largely already covered. Right, yeah. Um, except it does it through the means of rap battles, because <laughs> what Lin-Manuel Miranda ultimately concluded was that um, the story of a kid being born into a situation that was going down and down and down, um, basically being born into poverty and depravity, uh, working his way up and um, using his brain to really like get ahead in the world mm-hmm. was ultimately a really hip hop sort of story. So he made a play yeah. that was hip hop to reflect that, and, and it really there is still is like even though most of it is like rap or you know like kind of a hip hop kind of feel, there is still a lot of diversity in the style of music throughout. Yeah. Because you have somebody... they It's all very deliberate, though, because you have somebody like Thomas Jefferson who uh, went away from the Americas during the Revolution and comes back in at the beginning of Act 2 of the show mm. singing in an Elvis sort of blues <laughs> sort of way. What did he miss? He missed everything that made rap happen in the show, basically, <laughs> is what he missed. Yeah. Um, he, he still thinks it's cool to be like this... Uh, to be basically like in the glory days of when America was a colony. And that's kind of like, it kind of, his musical style choices reflect who, where he is in his character development and yeah. where his stances lie. And uh, using the music to kind of implicate diversity, but also indicate what the character is about is kind of like a really, like, that's, that, that was just really brilliant. I, uh, yeah. I don't know. There's really cool. Yeah. There, there's a lot of little cool stuff that you pick up on. Listen to the album or watch it or whatever. Um, there was a notable uh, cast change in Chicago. Um, apparently, at least for one show, Wayne Brady played Aaron Burr. What? In Chicago. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> yep. I didn't. When did that happen? <laughs> Where did you say that? Uh, other notable. Under. Uh, oh, yeah. Other notable performance. Uh, Apparently he wasn't the main person in the Chicago run, but... Um, Aaron Burr also was played by Daniel B. Breaker, who I do not know. Why is, apparent- is that notable, though? Well, he's best known for playing Donkey in Shrek the Musical. <laughs> Which, I, you know, is probably a thing. Yeah. Wow. I'm glad we found a way to utilize <laughs> the this military articles 
to get to, to a get musical, to, <laughs> to get to Hamilton. That's the way to do it. Yep. That's how you. That's how you navigate the revolution. <laughs> Find a way to Hamilton. Yep. We. I, I feel like we're uh, we're becoming experts at this Wikipedia thing. At this point, it's kind we're, of a weird. It's a good. weird expon- It's a weird thing though, because it's like we have the power to manipulate it <laughs> yeah. the way we want it to go. It's no longer as much of like a whimsical like, oh, what's gonna happen? It's it's gonna happen. It's, it's, this is it's, where we want to go. Yeah, this we're gonna go here. <laughs> we we know how to do this. Yeah, thing. that's that's the weird thing about but it. But when we hit a clip show, sometimes we're just like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that. That will keep things interesting. Maybe we have to change our format for the next hundo. Mm. I don't know. Personally, well, well, I think we lucked out this time. <laughs> I don't think it's always going to be this easy because we have a very limited number of founding fathers who are going to have musicals. Right. I mean, the, yeah. we can always cheat and go to the musical 1776. I think most of them are in that, too. <laughs> but uh, Yeah. So there you have it from Camp Curtain to Hamilton Musical. So, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, sure, you did. If not, go listen to Hamilton Musical on Spotify. You'll enjoy that. Um, but go ahead and visit facebook.com slash podcast. Give us a like and follow. Uh, we're also on Twitter at the TheWikiCron. And we're on iTunes, and you can rate and review us there. Uh, we have new episodes on our website we have all sorts of stuff going on on our website and uh, i would like to thank louis armstrong for our theme song and blind lemon jefferson not a <laughs> not a persecuted banderist nope just a, just a, a blind, blind blues musician yep <laughs> thankfully we didn't have any crazy american presidents that killed all the blind blues musicians um but yeah, so thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Apparently there's also a musical about Andrew Jackson. There's an Andrew Jackson musical? Yeah, it's called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. And it's a rock musical. Well, okay. That makes sense. That's exactly what I would have oh, expected. Oh, wow. <laughs> you gotta <laughs> go to that article, though, because the poster is pretty... Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty uh, interesting poster they got for that one. <laughs> kind of intrigued to check this out. Really. What the what? Why do I feel like I know Michael Friedman? He's probably done stuff. Nope. 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 He grew up in Philadelphia. That's it. Hmm. I, don't, I don't recognize anything else he's done. Maybe Friedman's just a popular last name. Could be. Point is though, history got all sexy pants. That <laughs> uh, doesn't sound promising. Yeah. It redefines America's seventh president as an emo rock star. An emo rock star? I don't know about that. That yeah, that seems That seems like a dumb take on it. Like if I, if he if anything he is a country musician. <laughs> if anything he's Toby Keith. I mean, really why not just have Andrew Jackson Jihad be um, Andrew Jackson? Do, do, yeah, like just have them just write have all the music. Be Andrew Jackson. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like if you're gonna do like emo, you should go with emo music, not rock music. But yeah, yeah, just. Mm. <laughs> I feel like mistakes were made, but that's okay. Oh, we'll always have Hamilton. At least somebody knows how to do a presidential, well, not presidential, but historical American musical properly. <laughs>